0: Hi, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. For each program, we choose a new book in the study of religion that's especially interesting, and we chat with the author of that book. For this program, I had the pleasure of talking with Kelly J. Baker about her wonderful new book, Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant American, 1915-1930, to 1930, which came out with University Press of Kansas in 2011. Now, if images of white robes, pointed hoods, and a burning cross represent racism and violence for you, then you're not alone. But do they also evoke ideas of nationalism, Protestantism, and masculinity? In the early 20th century, the second incarnation of the Ku Klux Klan tied their faith to patriotism and in the process produced a unique, self fashioned religious identity. Baker, who is a scholar of American religious history at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, examines this seemingly reprehensible organization, and treats this as she would any other phenomena, through a critical lens from an objective perspective. In this wonderful new book, she explores the writings of clan members and outlines their creative renderings of religion, nationalism, gender, and race. In our conversation, we discuss the importance of print culture, the communal act of reading, Jesus as the ideal clansman, the symbolic meaning of the robes, cross, and the flag, and the woman of the Ku Klux Klan. We end our discussion by looking at the Klan's legacy of exclusionism and conservatism as a widespread characteristic of American society, and how this is manifested in contemporary culture through figures like Terry Jones, who gained notoriety with his call to burn the Quran. Kelly does an excellent job of encouraging scholars of religion to re-examine our subjects and tackle issues that make us uneasy and uncomfortable. These topics and individuals are as much a part of religious history as the figures we would like to sit down and have a cup of coffee with. Kelly really was a delight to talk to, and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Religion. Uh, Today I have the pleasure of talking with Kelly Baker, uh, who's at the University of Tennessee, about her very interesting new book, The Gospel According to the Klan, The KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915-1930 which came out with University of Kansas Press. Uh, hi, Kelly. How are you?
1: Pretty good. How about you?
0: I'm doing good. Thanks for making the time to, to talk to us. Um, I'm really excited to talk to you about this, this book. Um, before we jump into the book, though, um, why don't you kind of introduce yourself, uh, how you got interested in religious studies and uh, that kind of journey?
1: Sure. Um, I actually started my um, academic career in American studies and transitioned over to religious studies um, in the shift from undergrad to grad programs. And what I discovered as a undergraduate American studies major is there were two um, subtopics that I couldn't get enough of them. Um, One was art history and the other was religious studies. And so when I transitioned into my work, I picked up religious studies as my main field of inquiry for quite a few reasons, but I think part of what I've always been interested in is trying to understand um, how people not only believe things and believe being a really problematic term, of course, but also how people enact and embody and um, live their religious traditions often in very messy, contradictory, not always expected ways. And so what I discovered is that um, the more I got into graduate work, the more I was intrigued by these questions of um, what's now called lived religion. Uh, partially, I think because I was raised in um, rural Florida so Mariana Florida um, and there it's the kind of proverbial Bible belt um, of the South where everyone's attached to a church everyone is um, participating and going into these things that new churches um, sort of sprout out and disappear um, in these kind of interesting ways and so I think that made me um, very conscious of the sort of flux that's involved there and made me want to sort of explore um, what that would mean a little more largely um, to people we sometimes are uncomfortable with too. Hmm.
0: And so, how, how did you get interested in this, uh, the topic of this book? Then, what, what brought you to uh, to your sources and to this topic? Yeah.
1: No, um, I started out um, working on uh, religion and visual culture. And um, as you know from the book, I develop um, more material culture analysis and understandings of the Klan. But one of the things that I was struck by is that um, people have a lot of patience and empathy um, for folks that we like. Um, and this became apparent not only in coursework, but in larger trends in scholarship that, especially in my field, which is American Religious History, um, a lot of scholars have no problem writing and um, doing participant observation with groups that um, you want to have lunch with, right? That these are people that you like and you admire, and um, I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with that. But I was sort of curious about um, the ways in which we delegate other groups and how we treat other groups. So one of the things that um, really drove this was this understanding of what what happens when we study those people that make us uncomfortable. And I couldn't find a group. I guess I probably could have found a group that made me more uncomfortable. But the Klan is definitely in that category. And I wanted to understand the logic um, and the worldview that they created um, in the best way that I could, um, while admitting all the kinds of stigmas and problems associated with, um, what sociologists tend to call unloved groups.
0: Hmm. Yeah. uh, After hearing about kind of, uh, your, your education and your interest, uh, how the book was formulated makes a lot more sense now. This focus on, uh, on objects a lot and, uh, which we'll, which we'll get into, of course. Um, maybe you could start off with, uh kind of how, how this particular iteration of the clan began and how, how they kind of imagined themselves.
1: Sure. Um, what I discovered when I first got into the scholarship is that lots of people were kind of stunned by the second clan. It has this incredibly... Rise and then this incredibly quick fall, right, with millions of members and um, a lot of attachment and influence in the 20s. And um, what's clear to me is that the second clan really hatched from um, this one. Figure William Simmons, who was involved in fraternities, he was a defrocked Methodist minister, uh, and he recreated the second clan um, in 1915 on the heels of two things in particular. First was um, the sort of tension in Georgia after the um, murder of Mary Fagan, which led to the lynching of Leo Frank. Um, and then also the um, theatrical release of birth of a nation so that Simmons understood these two to be very pivotal points. Um, With the um, death of Mary Fagan and the lynching of Leo Frank, there was this understanding that white womanhood was somehow under attack. Um, With birth of a nation, it recreated Klansmen, right? Reconstruction Klansmen as these heroes of the South, and it's clear um, from the archival evidence that Simmons was really invested in this image and wanted to recraft and remake this. Uh, and it just happened that he created this order in a moment, was able to publicize it, and actually garnered larger appeal.
0: Hmm. So I think the the average person who, who doesn't really know a lot about the Klan would – Simply think of them as as racist and violent and as this kind of small marginal group of of hillbillies, let's say. How how does this kind of uh, kind of popular maybe imagination reflect actual membership during this period in the 20s?
1: Yeah, it works for some periods. um, One of the things that I should note really quickly is that the Klan has had many, many incarnations and that after the 1920s there's a lot of fragmentation and what I think happens more often when we interpret the 1920s Klan is that people view it through um, later incarnations of the Klan particularly in the 1950s and 1960s and then again in the 1980s Um, and these are groups that fit that stereotype exactly, right? That they're marginal, that they're deeply racist um, that they are presenting um, this white supremacist culture in this very direct way. The 1920s Klan drew membership from what I would call the firmly middle class, um, that people who were involved in the Klan, both men and women, um, were educated. Uh, there were doctors, there were lawyers, there were teachers and bankers, there were ministers, that it had a lot more draw than that image allows us to recognize. Um, I think there's also a way in which that image makes us feel a little bit more comfortable. Um, one of the things that... I thought was really important in this book was to show that, um, racist aren't always those kinds of popular stereotypes that we like to imagine them, that instead, um, that white supremacy and its attachments to religion and even Protestantism happen in more subtle. And I would even argue more nefarious ways than we actually recognize.
0: Yeah. And you, you do this well. And I, I, I want to return to that. Um, once we kind of get into this idea of, of this clan's Protestantism, um, but but before I get there, um, uh, you you argue that the Klan is is representative, really, of larger things going on in American society, and I, I'm wondering if you can kind of delineate how that how that happens, or how how we can understand American society in the early 20th century through the Klan.
1: Right. Um, I think it's important to note that um, the Klan is not the only group at this moment that's reacting to things like immigration, um, that's reacting to new suffrage for women, that's reacting to race relations that is reacting to concerns over African American enfranchisement that hadn't been settled with the Civil War that, um, still presented. So it's, it was very clear to me, and other scholars have said this too, that the 1920s is a remarkably nativist, supremacist moment that it's pretty common. Um, I'm working on a project right now where I talk about Klan detractors. And, um, one of the things that they affirm is that they're white supremacists too. They're just not Klansmen. Um, so This really common culture and expectation of white superiority was very apparent at this moment. The concern that I trace in the book over Catholics was also um, a larger trend that people were very nervous about prospects of Catholics in American culture, whether they could be truly American if they were dedicated to this foreign entity and the Pope, these sorts of things. So the Klan, I think, just dramatizes these issues more elaborately than their peers, um, clearly, right, through costuming, ritual, these sorts of things.
0: Um, so by approaching the Klan as, as a religious group, um, you know, in the introduction, you talk a little bit about kind of the issues related to, to this kind of what's at stake by – basically authorizing that the Klan is a religious group. What, what, why is that problematic for some people? And why do you think that's important to, to understand it through this lens?
1: No, I mean, it was interesting to me because, um, in other works on the Klan, there was the tendency to talk about sort of religious moments, right. And religious identities and even trace denominations, but there was a clear hesitance sometime to actually claim a Protestant identity or to actually trace out what that Protestant identity looked like. And so part of, um, this project for me was trying to understand one, where this hesitance comes from, right? Why we need to claim something that's authentically Protestant um, is an interesting question. Um, And I'm not sure that it's always the job of scholars to delineate authentic or inauthentic. Um, But for me, it was one of those things where I think some of this hesitance lies in what that would mean then about how we tell the story of American Protestantism if we include the Klan this is something I also cover in the introduction that um, the story looks a little bit different. If we're telling the grand narration of um, American history through the lens of religion, then it's hard to make claims about progress and triumph. Um, if the clan becomes inserted into this narrative too. Yeah.
0: Um, so you, you talk about the importance of print culture and uh, this is, this is kind of, uh, one, one of your key points throughout the book is uh, this idea that print culture is kind of one of the unifying principles which made the, the second iteration of the clan very powerful and, and uh, important at the time. Maybe you could describe uh, how you came to your sources, what your sources look like, how you approach them.
1: Sure. Um, I did archival research at a number of um, state and regional archives. And uh, what I uncovered kind of magically, if I can use that language, (laughs) is um, is that for some reason, my library had the entirety of the Imperial Nighthawk and the Courier available on microfilm. I'm not sure what archivists decided to do this, um, when in their history they decided to purchase this, but it meant that I pretty much had the entirety of the Klan's national magazine available to me that I then supplemented um, with other print from archives in Indiana, in Georgia, um, and in Florida to look at how this um, presented. So it was one of those kind of happenstance things where someone was just kind of forward thinking and adopted this. So I have um, issues still in a filing cabinet in my home, which is kind of disturbing, of the entirety of this. Um, And so what I discovered after digging around a little bit more is that other scholars had a hesitance about using these sources. And the and the logic usually moves something like Since the Klan created these, these are propaganda, thus we cannot trust them, right? And so I decided maybe if we look at these as legitimate sources, and I think they are, then it sort of gives us a vision of what the Klan ideally wanted to create, right? So I'm not trusting them at face value at what they say, but looking at the sort of worldview that they're conjuring through print um, and how they're trying really hard to market this um, to Klansmen in local claverns, which are local meeting halls across the nation, so part of it. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
0: Oh, I was just going to ask you to elaborate on this idea. So why why did become Why did print culture become so important yeah. to Klan?
1: No, I mean part of it is the moment that they're in. Part of it is um, a lot of Klan leadership uh, was very very savvy about public relations in the 1920s. Simmons hires a publicity association who then helps craft this image. And clansmen um, become – the leadership in particular become very, very vehement about um, these national organs representing larger Klan positions on things. So much so that um, one of the things that I kind of loved when I was going through these is that every once in a while there would be articles in which the Klan leadership would be like, listen, we've told you – not to wear your robes in certain places and you're still doing it. Stop this. So you get these kind of fun moments of disjuncture too, where it's clear that they're crafting one image, but clansmen and Klanswomen are acting in different ways than that image suggests. The other reason is that these um, newspapers just kind of proliferated. Pretty much um, the national organization gave these um, – Newspapers to ministers for free, to educators for free. Um, the uh, subscription for other folks was very small, but they sent these out um, all over the continental United States to make sure that the local organization should have them. And in some instances, they even went as far to suggest that people should read aloud in this really didactic way articles from um, these newspapers like the Imperial Nighthawk at meetings. Um, you can imagine that that probably was not a popular choice. Um, um, yeah. But, you know, but this is what they're trying, trying so hard um, to accomplish with this, this image, right, that they're trying to create.
0: So uh, what what's your impression of how these were circulated, basically, uh, and, and who who exactly is reading this?
1: Right. Um, so they were encouraged to be. So th- what I should say is that for the 1920s clan to be a secret order. They were always very public about um, articles, positions. Um, Simmons had a huge um, kind of theatrical appearance at a congressional hearing, right, talking about the Klan. Uh, He even sent their fraternal manual to the um, Library of Congress so they could have it, right, just because they needed it in, in some instance. So for this to be a kind of private secret space, they also crafted this public image. So that in this, um, local claverns would have access to this, including leaders, but they would also encourage members to um, have these newspapers, but also pass them along. And so what we know from studies of print culture is that generally um, readership numbers on a magazine or a newspaper will tell us one thing, but it doesn't account for all the other hands that it's passed to. And there was a lot of encouragement of passing hands and presenting this. And so what would happen sometimes is an official documents too. And, um, in other places I would find, um, clan articles that had been circulated and put in another newspaper, um, people that were like clipping things and sending them on. Right. So it's clear that there was a lot of, um, passing around the question of whether Klansmen actually embodied what the national order wanted them to, and um, is an entirely different one and a thornier one that I, I don't think I can actually get to.
0: Sure. Um, so in the first chapter, you really kind of get the the heart of this idea of of the clan being a Protestant group, right? Um, and I love the way you open this chapter. You you talk about this naturalization ritual. Yes. Um, I'm wondering if you could kind of describe what that would look like, and then um, and then you talk about uh, kind of critics of the clan uh, and this idea that they represent themselves as a. Uh, Protestant group. So how, how did these critics deal with this uneasiness about the, the close similarities between things like this naturalization ritual and, and what they see as true Christianity?
1: Yeah. And that's the reason I opened the chapter in that way is that I sort of wanted to address that there were clan detractors at that moment that were nervous about the clan's um similarity right it's familiarity um and so the naturalization ceremony is a ceremony in which um men became clansmen so the language that they used is that they would move from being aliens to becoming citizens of this invisible empire which is the language that they used to talk about the large um expansive role of the clan in the nation so with the naturalization ceremony, there is a particular moment in which um, the leader of the clavern, again, sort of just the local meeting hall, um, would actually sprinkle water on these newly dedicated citizens um, and say things like "In body, in spirit and mind and claim that they were now new creatures who would see the world differently and were part of this invisible empire. So it feels... I'm vaguely evangelical that it's not only Protestant, but it sort of feels like an evangelical um, moment of baptism. So detractors like Henry Fry, who I talk about in that first chapter, who um, is kind of remarkable. He's an interesting character. Uh, he says that he can, keep up with the Klan's white supremacy, that he even likes that they glorify the Reconstruction Klan, but they move too far when they mock baptism. And it's interesting because I think Fry had to understand it as mockery and he couldn't understand it as like, respectful mimicry or part of a larger fraternal move that's always been kind of evangelical in the way that it's set up. But it is this kind of um, nervousness that they get. And you can see very elaborately uh, in that chapter that these detractors immediately not only call them blasphemous, but one goes as far to call them satanic, right? They have moved beyond the pale of um, Protestantism. And so part of me thinks that it's kind of this Freudian narcissism of minor differences that the nervousness is that this is too close to what they might find in a Methodist or Baptist church. And this is a problem. I think the other kind of issue that's interesting here is that someone like Fry had no problem with white supremacy or anti-Catholic agitation, but it was faith, right. That proved problematic.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah, it is, and how, how you talk about this idea of kind of the true Christianity or the true Protestantism. It's uh, it's interesting this this dichotomy they're creating. Um, so how can you explain how the Klan members um envision or present their own understanding of what what it means to be a Protestant or what Protestantism means? What does it mean to them?
1: Yeah, they do this in a couple of different ways. Um, my favorite is that um, a number of Klan writers would um, claim that they were protest ants, right? That looking back to the Reformation and looking back to the example of Martin Luther, that they are protesting against things, right? So they're Protestant in that way, um, in that kind of interesting lineage. The other way that they do this is that they very specifically um, attach themselves to images of Jesus and understandings of Jesus as a masculine, redemptive savior as a part of what they're doing. Um, one writer goes even as far to suggest that if Jesus had had an option, right, he would have, of course, been a clansman. Um, so that they're trying to claim this lineage back to Jesus and back to Martin Luther. The intriguing thing that they do, of course, is that they completely ignore. Um, Hundreds and hundreds of years of um, Catholicism as their way to do this, right? That in this kind of uh, um, estimation, I guess, Jesus and Luther, and then there are things that happened in between, but they don't want to claim this in some kind of way. Which is a kind of fun, selective, historical move, I guess. Um, but they, they very much tried to, um, present this Protestant identity from those different ways. They would also do things like go through and talk about, um, what Martin Luther did correctly and what he did incorrectly, which was kind of intriguing, um, and the problems that Martin Luther causes for Protestantism, particularly that, um, focus on um, scripture alone allows denominationalism and that this is a problem. So that they're continually um, engaging and redefining this term. But um, what I think is telling is that when I've presented this in other places, is people are like, well, this Protestantism looks a lot like my Methodism or um, my um, Baptist identity. Um, and that there is this kind of resonance that's there that I think is important
0: to you. Um, I'm wondering you, you brought up this idea of, of Jesus kind of being the ideal clansman. I'm wondering if you could kind of flesh that out, because I I I thought that was a really interesting part of this chapter.
1: No, um, it's it's one of those where um one of the earlier incarnations of the title for this book was Jesus was a clansman. Um but uh my my dear advisor and um was like this is probably not the best plan, right? That's that sort of sets the tone in a way that Maybe this is not the best. Um, But they, yeah, they spend a lot of time um, trying to show how Jesus fits nicely within clan parameters. And so they do this by um, looking... at Jesus as a perfect clansman, um, with his clan being Judaism, which is kind of intriguing. They make these weird kind of commentary about how, um, he was very faithful to his nation and this identity and this religion. And they're so glad. And then somehow, um, he becomes Christian and they never sort of work that out. Right. Um, that he was very faithful to this, um, That they look at him very much in the line of, um, other muscular Christians who understand him to be a tough guy, right? Who you can look up to, that he's a carpenter, um, and he's, but, and he's tough and he's, but he's also respectful and gentlemanly. Um, so they, they, they're doing all this kind of nice, um, uh, I guess theological work with Jesus here. And, uh, the, the main, one of the main points that I sort of pushed to, Two, then, you know, when they put on the robes, they spend a lot of time talking about the robes as symbolizing, um, Christ on their bodies, which is a very kind of fascinating concept, um, where they're saying that every time a clansman puts on his robe, right, he's wearing Jesus and thus he is representing this model of behavior for them, um, And that was the part that I had to work the hardest to entirely understand um, because it was so surprising to me when I found this um, in early archival work um, where I was trying to understand exactly how they could say this and where they got from this and what they gained, right, from claiming um, that the robes, um, which we generally interpret as terrifying or um, not particularly Christ-like, right, then
0: were. Um, I must say you have a lot of – Amazing pictures in this book, and uh, they—they they are a little bit creepy to look at, though. Um, I—I'm I, wondering the—the uh, the, the idea of of all the symbolism, the the robes, the hood, uh, the cross. Um, maybe, you, you know, you talk about this in, in relation to kind of this material culture. So maybe you could expand on this. You know, what's the role of the burning cross, for example? Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, I, I will never forget the first time I presented on this work at a conference. Um, I read a line that appears, of course, in the book that um, when clansmen look upon the fiery cross, um, what they're actually seeing is the light of Jesus. And I will never forget this because I had multiple members of the audience um, either blanch or um, one guy sounded kind of like he was choking, right? In um, this, this kind of like she couldn't have possibly just said this uh, reaction. And so one of the things that I do in the book and that I that I try to do is to understand how clansmen um, were supposed to view these objects, right? So instead of the fiery cross being terrifying, right, that you were supposed to bask in its warmth because this is how Jesus lights the world, right? Instead of the robes being ghastly, it's actually that you're wearing um, the image of Christ on your body, right? Um, They're doing all of this, um, a lot of symbolic work, right? To change these objects from their public perception, to the perception within the order. Um, And Simmons, William Simmons, the um, founder of this second clan, spends a lot of time working on this where he's trying very carefully to conjure the Reconstruction clan, but he wants to sort of remove himself from that image of violence and terror. And one of the things that, I point out, and which is kind of unavoidable, is that they spend a lot of time on this sort of symbolic work. But, you know, when someone finds a fiery cross planted in their yard, generally their reaction is not, oh, it's the light of Jesus, right? It's, oh, the clan is after me and this is not good. Um, so that there are these kinds of competing um, interpretations of these objects
0: this this is kind of outside of the the scope of the book but i uh I mean uh, are there sources that kind of reflect maybe a different understandings of the cross and of the robe that you you've come across
1: no I am um- there are lots and lots of people who aren't Klansmen that have different visions of this, not surprisingly. Um, and one of the things that I sort of toyed with doing after this book was to actually talk about um, the way clansmen are portrayed in popular culture and the sort of symbolic value that we place on them. Um, because generally when you read accounts of um, people who find burning crosses in their yard, right? Generally um, they're worried that someone's after them or that they're going to need to leave their home, right? Or evacuate or, something like this and so it's clear to me too that the clan is aware of this and that part of this kind of symbolic movement for them is also trying to get away um from these aspects that are terrible, or if you wanted to read them, um, more cynically that they're trying to sort of counteract, um, the images of them, of them as terrorists, um, in this time period, it wouldn't be the term that was used, but vigilantes or something like this. Um, so it's, it's very interesting. And in, in a an ar- separate article, I write about, um, a guy in New York who finds the cross in his yard, Catholic businessman. And he, um, pretty much his neighbors watch the Klan erect the cross, set it on fire. And then they actually all stand out there while it's burning in his yard. And so the New York times interviews him and he's like, I'm not sure what I did. Right. Why is the Klan bothering me? This is hateful. I can't believe they're doing this. They interview one of his neighbors who um, is a woman. And she um, actually says that she was just struck by the the glow and, and how it represented the savior. Right. So, I mean, there's this kind of, Interesting um, interplay here um, between victims, right, and those who are being um, those who are doing the victimizing at this point.
0: Yeah, that's that's really fascinating, actually. Uh, you, so, in, in the second chapter, you, you kind of uh, focus on this idea of nationalism, and uh, you know, you tie uh, the clan's idea of kind of their own faith uh, to the nation. And what? So, what is this relationship between kind of faith uh, and the nation? Yeah.
1: Um, so. What I should say is that I never wanted to write that chapter. I feel like this is the only time I get to ever say that. Um, One of the the goals for this book is that I really didn't want to engage um, 100% Americanism because everyone talks about 100% Americanism and I was hoping that I could avoid it in some way and then I couldn't because what I found is that um, Klansmen really imagined this patriotism, this 100% Americanism, which is one of the banners of the 1920s Klan, is actually synonymous with Protestantism. So that when they're crafting images of nation, the only way for the American nation to work for them is as a white Protestant nation that you can't separate these. Um, And so they spend a lot of time talking about how, When you look at the American flag, what you should understand is that this represents the blood, right, of everyone who has died in war, of all of these ancestors, um, of all of these founders of the nation, which what you should also realize is that the flag is a theological statement about how God looks down on everyone, right, and America is this destined nation, So what I found in the reason I wrote the chapter is how intertwined these were, right? That that somehow this patriotism then has this religious dimension that becomes necessary um, for them understanding civilization, but also for them to claim that the people who should be dominant in the nation then should be white Protestants. If it's a, you know, the sort of languages, if it's a white Protestant nation – founded by white Protestants, then of course, right, the Klan um, would be the saviors of this nation because they are going to be the reigning white Protestants.
0: Um, you also uh, t- talk uh, about this idea of the Christian knighthood. Um, so explain what the, this, this concept is. And then if, um, if you could tell us, how does this idea of Christian knighthood inform um, the Klan's notion of masculinity?
1: So um, the clan, of course, is a fraternity um, and fraternities um, have these wonderfully strange ritual systems and costuming and um, all of these uh, uh, sort of manuals and uh, altars and all of this kind of stuff. So the Klan isn't very different from other fraternal orders um, in their use of kind of language of knighthood or um, representing these, these images. What is interesting is that they go through a lot of effort to claim that the nation is in peril, um, that the only people that can defend it are white Protestant men, and that the ideal – model, I guess, for these white Protestant men should be Christian knights who um, are able to sort of step in and become heroic at a moment's notice. And so in that chapter, I trace out how Jesus is a masculine savior, but I also talk about the remarkable amount of effort that the clan puts forth to create a junior order for boys (laughs) in which they design all these very, very elaborate rituals that overall um, young boys between the ages of, oh, I don't know, 11 and 18 found to be terribly uninteresting. So that they spend all this time creating this Christian knighthood and saying, "Isn't this what you want to be? Don't you want to be heroes?" These kinds of things, and then the junior order, um, the members of the junior order, find that these rituals that they create to sort of construct this and to claim masculinity doesn't actually work for their audience, um, which is a kind of intriguing moment too. Um, but they spend a lot of time trying to create clansmen as gallant knights saving not only the nation, but of course um, in the next chapter, damsels in distress, right? That white womanhood is at stake and that these knights are the only way to guarantee um, that these poor white women are protected um, in some kind of way. Uh, what I find interesting about this is that the women of the clan, um, the women's auxiliary order um, pretty much was not um, overwhelmingly impressed by this emphasis on vulnerable white womanhood either.
0: Yeah. Um, that. I found that chapter really fascinating because well, I think a lot of people when they think of the Klan, they think of white men. They don't think of women. So uh you know can you can you describe who, who is this the woman of the Ku Klux Klan? Um yeah, let's just just start there because that sure. I think in itself is is interesting.
1: Yeah, so it's um it started as an auxiliary order of the Klan um for wives, mothers, um, daughters sisters. So the idea is that it would provide some kind of support to the larger goal of the men's order. What's also apparent here is that the women's order envisioned itself not as auxiliary. So there was an attempt by the men's order to claim that the women's order is auxiliary and that they're just in supportive um, roles as help meets or help mates. The language shifts a little bit sometimes. And so what they wanted to say is that the women were just going to support them and sort of present um, all that these manly men needed. What happens in reality is that the women of the clan um, actually argue for very vehemently. Um, in support of women's suffrage, so women's voting rights. Um, the, the One of the presidents of it, Robbie Gill Comer, um, actually becomes a pretty strident critic um, where she challenges the men's order to do what they say they're going to do. Um, so the, the women never act quite in the ways that the men hope they will. They, they aren't these sort of helpless, vulnerable women. Instead, they're actually pretty motivated and reform-minded. Um, but the kind of tension in that chapter is that they um find themselves continually having to sort of represent themselves in these supportive roles to get anything done and sort of to fit in with the larger vision um, of Protestantism that's apparent there too. The unfortunate thing about the um, women's clan is that I haven't been able to find as many resources. Um, Kathleen Blee has a really lovely book where she interviewed former um, members of the WKK from the 1920s and talked to them sort of very avidly in this um, oral history about what they were doing and, and how they were handling that Um And so she's able to get at some of the things that um, I couldn't because of the sources that I was using to sort of show the tensions that were there, but also the way in which these women um, were also deeply comfortable with white supremacy um, and the larger claims of the men's order too.
0: Yeah. uh, So uh, this idea of motherhood plays a very important part in this. Um, But, uh, but I'm, you know, as you're talking, I'm really interested in this, this, I mean, there must have been internal tensions between uh, kind of having one 's own agency and in, in articulating a sense of gender uh, from a woman 's perspective but then also trying to fit into this model that 's basically imagined for what what the role of women are by by the clan. Yeah.
1: And, and, you know, it's, it's also apparent that the leadership of the WKKK struggled with this, um, where they were trying to figure out exactly how they could respond to the men's order, or what they could do. Um, and what happens a lot of time is that when the men present women in the newspapers and these sorts of things, it's always in this kind of vulnerable role. Um, so they're trying very avidly to say white women can't protect themselves. Um, they also laud motherhood, the men's order, at the same time that they're really nervous about mothers ruining boys and men, right? And keeping them away from this masculine um, endeavor. So that there's all of this kind of intriguing contradiction about how this would work. And Robbie Gilcomer is really fascinating because you can tell from her speeches and her writing that she's trying very avidly to work against this role while she also realizes um, that the men's order is – in the sort of position of dominance. Um, So every once in a while she chides them very directly in ways that surprised me. Um, But generally then she sort of moves back and says, you know, we only do this because we're supportive of you, right? We only criticize because we love or something like this. Um, (laughs)
0: Um, Yeah, that's really, that that was a a really interesting chapter. I thought you did a very good job on that. Um, In the the next chapter, you talk about the kind of notions of race Um, And I'm wondering if you could kind of explain how the Klan constructed uh, racial categories.
1: Yeah. So this is the chapter where we talk about how white supremacy is divine. Um, So the Klan spent a lot of time trying to claim that racism was actually a divine – position rather than a human-made construction. And so what they do is that they often um, go to biblical text to claim this, um, to show that um, there are different categories and different races in sacred text. This thus means that races should stay separate and distinct. Um, The other thing that they do that sort of ratchets it, ratchets it up a notch, I guess, would be one way to say it, is that they also claim that white supremacy then is a divine position. um, So that this is expected, that whites are the most superior race and thus other races fall under this. But what ends up happening is they end up using sort of weird combinations of biblical text, um, race, theory from what we would now call pseudoscience in that time period. But they also want to create a different kind of category to talk about the American race as a distinct ethnic category too. Um, but they rely on, um, things that become pretty common from the late 19th to the early 20th century about hierarchies of race and how this should be expected. Not surprisingly, um, they then rank um, immigrants from different places, right, with different levels of fitness and um – Again, not surprisingly, Anglo-Saxons from England rank best in this kind of image that they have, right? Um, where they're nervous about other, um, quote-unquote, white immigrants from Europe uh, because of attachments to things like Catholicism or Judaism. So that Protestantism, again, becomes sort of wedded uh, to their notion of whiteness, too.
0: Yeah, so it, it, I'm, I'm wondering about this... Uh, this conflict between kind of this idea of kind of white supremacy, but then also this um, distancing from other interpretations of Christianity. So uh, because one of the groups that becomes the target of the, the clan are, are Catholics. So how, how do they kind of uh, make this distinguish? Uh, dis- what What's the kind of argument for, for this?
1: Um, so one of the things that they try to, present um, is that Protestantism becomes the sort of best form of Christianity. Now, they're not alone in this kind of assessment, especially in this time period in the U.S. There's already nervousness about Catholics and um, Catholic immigration. But they are making this claim that Protestantism, because it's based in – Actually, they go further than this. Rather than being based in democracy and liberty, that Protestantism is where democracy and liberty come from, which is kind of a remarkable claim. And that because of this, that Protestantism is the sort of, highest echelon because it allows individuals to do their own thing, to reach God in their own kind of ways. Um, And so what they try to distinguish in the way that they try to make a claim against Catholicism is they want to say that Catholicism as practiced by Catholics does make them nervous, but that's okay. What they're really worried about Is a category called Romanism, which is, um, as they understand it, the political creation from the Catholic Church. And so this is with the Pope as a foreign head of state. This is with Catholics involved in political affairs. And so what they were worried about is the creeping threat of Romanism would somehow destroy the Protestant character of the American nation. One of the ironies of this, I think, is that by the time they're even lamenting this, um, the religious demographics um, of the U.S. were shifting and changing. So by the time they realized that there was this encroaching diversity, um, it's almost too late (laughs) for things to happen um, about this. But, you know, they're sort of claiming dominance and decline at the same time without ever realizing that maybe those two should not go together.
0: Were there people that were, were they trying to level this idea of being Catholic but then also this idea of being uh, white and the supremacy of of kind of a white race
1: and they were and for them Protestantism was the natural religion that went with whiteness that these two were very deeply enmeshed together that the best immigrants were immigrants that came from Protestant countries is one of the ways that they would frame this and that and one of the things I talk about in this race chapter Um, so that they very much see these categories working Tandem, so it's not simply that race and religion, or even nation, are separate in these world uh, the worldview of the Klan, but rather they're intimately bound together, and they're continually sort of reconstructing and redefining one another. And it was an incredible um, chain of logic that I did my best to parse out. (laughs) <laughs> uh, but to sort of present this sort of intermingling of all of these identities to create that one sort of proper American citizen.
0: Yeah. Um, you do a very good job of kind of dissecting these clan theologies. Uh, it's very, very interesting stuff. Um, so uh, you, you kind of take as a, a as a, a kind of a case study, I guess um, this, this right in Notre Dame. Um, so, what, what exactly happened here and why, why is this particular conflict significant?
1: So, uh, this, um, by and large, was one of my favorite chapters to write in this book. Um, partially because I don't get to talk about um, people slapping babies in my normal <laughs> scholarly work. So, um, the excitement that I had when I found this source where um, the clan um, claims that Notre Dame, male Notre Dame students are yanking babies out of baby carriages and slapping them across the face um, had to go in there. Uh, so, basically, what happens is that there's a moment um, in which the Klan decides to march um, in South Bend. Not surprisingly, um, the University of Notre Dame is nearby. Um, the Notre Dame students, even though warned by their president that they should not engage, decide that they cannot help it, right? That it's too much, that this these Klan, Klansmen who claim that um, Catholics aren't citizens are there. Um, hijinks ensue back and forth, I might add. Uh, And pretty much it ends up with rioting in the streets (laughs) between Klansmen and Notre Dame students. Um, And one of the things that I trace in the chapter is how incredibly um, rich – maybe might be one way to um, put this – and um exaggerated, the descriptions of these riots become, right? Um, the, the Klan presents this one image in which Klansmen are these poor, beleaguered, Protestant American citizens who are being attacked by ravishing, you know, um, invading Catholics um, in the street. And Catholics, of course, are saying, like... How dare you do this, right? And you started it and these kinds of things. And the South Bend press tries to engage this issue in a a somewhat neutral or objective way. But what became pivotal for me in this case study is it becomes so clear that in this moment of this Klan Notre Dame riot, that The Notre Dame students, by engaging Klansmen like this, pretty much materialize every single fear that the Klan has about Catholics in the 1920s, that they don't like Protestants, that they're against sort of Americanism and these sorts of things. And so the Klan very avidly crafts this narrative in which Notre Dame students become representative of all the evils of Catholicism. And all of the problems that this can cause, right? If if white Protestants are being attacked in the street, especially their babies, <laughs> then obviously something has gone wrong. Um, and so it's this kind of intriguing moment where um, they're not actually entirely off, but the way they narrate it becomes really important.
0: Um, so... You, you kind of take us through the full history of this second iteration, this, kind of, this quick rise and then this, this kind of quick decline. I'm wondering if you could kind of describe this – what led to the decline of the, this second clan?
1: So uh, there are a couple things in play here. Um, one and the one that's the most remarked upon is that um, D.C. Steve Stevenson, who was a clan leader in Indiana – is, um, charged and eventually convicted, um, of the murder of a young woman named Madge Oberholzer, um, who served as his secretary. Um, and the whole affair feels like a soap opera. Um, And so Stevenson lures her, her away. It's clear that he raped her. It's clear that he tries to marry her. She decides to poison herself to get away from him, and she eventually dies, but not before confessing all these things that have happened to her. So one of the things that happens then is that the Klan sort of gets national attention um, in a way that is not entirely favorable. One of the interesting things that um, I mention in the book is that a lot of the press coverage um, up until 1922 or so is actually kind of favorable for this new Klan that people are excited about it. They're on board. And then this becomes a moment in which um, with the Stevenson trial um, where people start to get really nervous about the Klan and what they can do. The other part of this is that um, in Indiana, they realize that they have what's called the Klan legislature where so many Klansmen were elected um, to the state legislature. So it looks like the Klan is trying to infiltrate and somehow harm democracy too. So that's part of it. Um, The other part of it, I think, is that – some of the things that they're claiming get picked up in other movements. So one of the things I try to do is trace how the Klan no longer becomes necessary at a certain moment, especially because of their sort of theatricality and spectacular way to understand this. And instead, some of the things that they become concerned with, um, 100% Americanism, this focus on Protestantism, family, women, these kinds of things actually gets picked up in other conservative movements and sort of filters through the 20th century. Um, so, so that this kind of brand of politics and style moves out of this movement into the larger culture and becomes kind of an acceptable format.
0: Um, Maybe, uh, maybe I was misreading this, but um, you, I, you seem to stress the, the decline also related to this idea of the importance of this print culture that, that was very important in kind of the, the unification uh or the uh solidification of this kind of clan identity um did did this play an important part in the decline of the the clan
1: um the print in particular or lack of print or right, yeah that that, yeah. that
0: this idea that the this this print culture that played such a significant role in the in the early 20s is now phasing out so to speak
1: And it it does. I mean, and this is entirely a part of it, too, is that um, it becomes clear that once these scandals hit and these other sorts of things, um, the the Klan starts to hemorrhage members. And thus, those newspapers that were so important in an earlier moment um, become less and less important. Um, So that you know, this kind of image that they're creating starts to show cracks by 1925. That They're really trying to withstand this this kind of image of these noble white Protestant men who protect vulnerable women um, and sort of work against these other kinds of threats. And in 1925, people are less inclined to believe this and less inclined to pay attention to their own crafting of that. So one of the things that I'm trying to do in this book is to sort of present their ideal image and when this ideal image starts to falter. Right. And so what other currents we could look at um for these kinds of forms of nationalism and focus on Protestantism.
0: Um so at the end of the book, I, I like how you uh you know, it'd be very easy to just say, well this is this is the the clan of the early twentieth century and and here's some modern kind of incarnations of that. But uh, you, you're very upfront about kind of uh, why this is problematic. Um, I wonder if you could kind of describe from your own sense why uh, you, you chose not to kind of reflect on what's going on with modern Ku Klux Klan.
1: Yeah. Um, so what I should say is that um, if you can't tell, my afterward is that kind of like cagey moment where um, – I finally allow the historian in me to say this doesn't work, right? Um, these these kinds of analogies don't work, um, and I and I think that there is a tendency when we talk about the Klan to imagine that all iterations of the Klan are connected in this seamless genealogy, right? That it rises and falls and it rises and falls, but we can connect them all and that they're similar. And one of the things that I'm trying to do in the afterward is to show that perhaps this move, um, though I think it does have merit, also obscures some of the very important ways that this clans brand and style of religious politics, and especially religious nationalism, actually appears in other movements, not just clan movements. So while it would be really tempting to say, what are clansmen in the 21st century doing? Um, instead, in that chapter, I talk about ways and which this kind of rhetoric is mobilized in um, 21st century culture um, in not necessarily with robes and hoods, right, but with uh, the burning of the Quran, with claims by someone like Glenn Beck that he is the representative of what the civil rights movement wanted to happen, right? These kinds of moments um, that really had me scratching my head where I could see that brand um, apparently clear. Um, I could have traced out modern Klansmen. Uh, but I think the way in which some of this rhetoric is mainstreamed uh, is an important thing to note about um, the contemporary moment.
0: Yeah. Could you go uh, kind of develop this idea with the Klan's the legacy in these kind of non-Klan movements?
1: Sure. Um, one of the things that I do in the afterward is I talk very particularly about Terry Jones Who um, received international infamy, let's go with that, um, when he um, decided to um, put up this campaign um, of this burn a Quran uh, and brought all this emphasis to this very tiny, actually, church um, in Florida uh, that he was responsible for um, and that he wanted to burn a Quran, right, and do this. And one of the things I talk about is. There's this political cartoon that one of my students brought me um, that shows Terry Jones with his um, handlebar mustache in a white shirt um, being handed a torch by a Klansman, right? Uh, And one of the things I point out is it would be really easy, an easy move, right, to say that, yes, of course, the Klan and Jones make a lot of sense together. Um, But I try to complicate this image by saying That these languages of tolerance and intolerance, right, and how we pay attention to them, that just because something seems similar doesn't mean it is necessarily alike um, as part of this parsing. So I feel like... Um, In the afterward, I'm trying to say that when we look at these things, right, that this sort of legacy is much more complicated than simply pointing to Jones or even doing, which is what I think some people expected me to do, just to claim Glenn Beck is the inheritor of this. Um, And I don't think he is, right? I think that's not a fair comparison, though his rhetoric does have some of that similarity.
0: Yeah, you you do a very good job. I the, I really enjoyed the afterward as well. So, um, so maybe before I let you go, you could uh, tell us kind of where your research has gone since the book, or maybe where you're headed as well.
1: Ah, uh, see this is the this is the question where you say how are these two projects related um <laughs> so uh so my more recent work um is on uh, apocalypticism and doomsday in american culture where i'm looking um very avidly at cultural portrayals of apocalypse and thinking through um, commodification and consumerism of apocalyptic ideas, but also products. So one project I have right now is um, on why we need products, right? Um, For the end of the world, why are people buying guns? Why are people buying zombie ammo, right? These kinds of things to think about the kind of interesting ways in which um, religious ideologies become products and what these products do for us or don't do. So that's one of the things that I'm interested in. Um, And that project's deeply enmeshed, too, in understandings of – religion, race, and gender, which are the kind of trifecta that I um, pay attention to, particularly um, understandings of um, conservative visions of religion and um, white masculinity. So those are attached. Uh, the other project that I'm working on right now is a cultural history of zombies in American culture, using the zombie as an object to explore um, cultural shifts in the 20th century um, in regards to um, race and gender and questions of um, consumer devotion. So what I should say is that my my work has moved decidedly in this kind of pop cultural um, way, as opposed to the very archival project that um, Gospel According to the Klan is. Um, But it's still informed very deeply by my concerns over um, images of intolerance, um, ideologies of difference, And my nervousness over um, the ethical visions that um, zombie films and things like Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series provide for um, avid readers, watchers, consumers.
0: Yeah, those sound great. And uh, after reading this book, I mean, you can I can see how your kind of uh, intellectual interests could connect to that very easily. I don't think they seem as far as apart uh, as maybe to, to listeners who haven't read the book.
1: <laughs> well, good. I'm, I'm glad to know that every once in a while, um, my, uh, my students are like, can you explain to us how you get from here to there? And I can do it. I can do it. Right. It's just this, that on sort of first blush, maybe they don't seem to work together, but they, they are picking up continual threads of interest.
0: Well, Kelly, thanks so much. It was really a pleasure talking to you and it was, a. a a joy to read the book uh even on this this kind of gloomy topic uh, so thank you for making some time to talk to us.
1: Oh, well, I appreciate it, and I'm so glad um that you found it useful and um I will take that it's a joy, and what I've learned very early on is that working on groups like this means that vocabularies that we normally like just don't work as well. <laughs> um so I really appreciate it.
0: yeah, thanks again. That was Kelly J. Baker professor of religion at the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, about her new book, Gospel According to the Klan, the KKK's Appeal to Protestant America, 1915-1930, to 1930, on University Press of Kansas in 2011. We look forward to our future projects and hopefully can talk to her again. Thanks for listening.